Okay, the passage that we are looking at today is found in Romans chapter 9, uh, verses 14 to 29. And uh, th- this is a very um, challenging passage. Uh, and, and I didn't choose it today because, um, you know, I necessarily like challenges. Uh, the reason I chose this passage today is because it's just where we're up to in our sermon series in the book of Romans. And this is one of the benefits of um, working consecutively through a book of the Bible. It actually it forces us to, um, to look at the passages that normally we would just put in the too hard basket. Uh, but this one, uh, it's an extremely important passage because it does shape our understanding of um, who God is. Uh, that's actually the main uh, point of this passage, that we would actually know uh, God uh, more deeply and know what it means that salvation is by grace alone for the glory of God alone. That's the, the number one thing. So if you don't hear anything else from there, <laughs> you've already got the main point. Anyway, this, this passage in Romans 9, it is part of a, a larger section in the book of Romans from chapter 9 to chapter 11 where Paul is dealing with the question of why is it that some people believe the gospel and other people do not? And that was a very big question for Paul because many of his fellow Jews had rejected Jesus. And, you know, the nation of Israel, wasn't that God's people? And so it raised this massive question, had God's plan failed? And so Paul's answering that question throughout Romans 9 to 11. And he began, uh, as we saw last week, he begins answering the question of why not everyone believes the gospel by talking about God's election. God's election, that means uh, God chooses uh, who he will save. And uh, we're going to continue learning about that now because that's where we got up to uh, verse 14. So verse 14 is now where Paul, he deals with some of the objections to um, God's election. So let's hear the word of God. Uh, Verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is moulded say to its moulder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of some lump, uh, sorry, to make out of the same lump one vessel for honourable use and another for dishonourable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he called, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. 
and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Uh, This is the word of God. Let's um, pray. Heavenly Father, we ask uh, that you now would renew our minds as we consider this part of your word and may your spirit help us to see the glory of your sovereign mercy. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the big question is why do some people believe the gospel and others do not? And there's lots of ways we can answer that question. You know, we could talk about uh, influences on people. We could talk about the way they're brought up. We could talk about um, the role of mentors. We could talk about evangelistic strategies. We could talk about all of these things. These are all valid parts of the, uh, the answer. But that's not where Paul goes in Romans 9. No, Paul, when he, uh, when he answers the question, why do some believe the gospel and some don't, he goes to the very source, the very ultimate reason. Why? And what is the ultimate reason? It all goes back to God's election. Okay, so in light of that, we can say the reasons people believe the gospel is because God has chosen them to believe. The reason people don't believe the gospel is because God has not chosen them to believe. Now, when people hear that for the first time, what do you think a common reaction to that is? A common reaction is, that's not fair. Okay, because to us initially, it sounds like God's not giving people a fair go. You know, to only choose some but not all, that, to us that sounds unfair. It almost sounds like if you could imagine a father of five uh, rounds his children up when they're young, not now, but when they're young and, and says, here's a lolly for you, here's a lolly for you, and here's a lolly for you. Now what happens? There is outrage. That's not fair. How can you choose some and not all? And so that tends to be the reaction when we hear about God's election. And along with being unfair, uh, often the objection is, well, that if God is the one who chooses, then that makes all of our choices irrelevant, almost an illusion. Uh, it's even sometimes said that um, election just means we're all you know, robots doing what we've been pre-programmed to do. Uh, you could almost imagine someone on Judgment Day turning around to God and saying, hey, it's not my fault, I didn't believe in you, you didn't choose me. And so, you know, we have all of these questions, uh, even objections. Uh, it's a complex subject. And, so, and it's not surprising that people find it confusing, uh, people find it uncomfortable. And uh, Paul obviously knew that. He knew that people would find it hard to accept. And uh, he'd obviously heard all of the objections before, because he now deals with them in this passage. The very ones I've just raised, you know, that it's unfair, uh, that it just removes our responsibility. Uh, Paul deals with them in this passage. 
And as he does that, we learn three very important things about God's election. And the three things are that God's election <clears throat> is all about God's mercy, God's election is all about <clears throat> his sovereignty, and God's election has some very big surprises. So that's, that's our three points. Let's look at those. Uh, first of all, <clears throat> sorry, God's election is all about his mercy. So that's in verses 14 to uh, 16, and this is where Paul is answering that objection that election's unfair. Uh, so Paul, notice he says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is there injustice? In other words, is it unfair that God chooses some, um, but not all? And what's the answer? We've heard this answer a lot in Romans. By no means. By no means. There's no injustice. And then he gives the reason. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. Summary, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So here we see that God elects people to salvation based on what? Based on something good in the person? No, based on mercy. It's God's mercy. That's how he does it. And the thing about mercy, see, mercy is something that the giver of mercy is under no obligation to give. Okay, mercy, by definition, is non-obligatory. Uh, so I'll give you an example of, of what I mean. Uh, there's a lot of really rich people in the world, like mega rich, and they're into philanthropy, some of them. And so what a common approach is for these philanthropists uh, is to set up organisations in poorer parts of the world uh, where they uh, select or, or, or choose a number of um, children to receive economic support. And... Um, is that going to stop? Good. <laughs> so... Yeah, sorry, I got distracted. Um, yeah, so, yeah, philanthropists, they choose uh, children to receive support. So that, that means, you know, their food, their shelter, their clothing, uh, their health and education, all paid for. And the aim of this is to break the cycle of poverty in that child's life. Now, let's just imagine, though, that out of the many thousands of children in the world that, that could do with this support. Let's, let's imagine a philanthropist comes in and chooses 500 children to receive the support. And uh, they could probably uh, afford a whole lot more. But can anyone say, hey, that's not fair that you only chose 500 and not all of them? Can anyone say that? Of course not. Because the, the rich person, they're under no obligation to help any. It's, it's actually an act of mercy. Even if they just helped one, even that's just a, an act of mercy. And so we can see that there's nothing unfair about choosing some, but not all. Uh, to choose any at all is actually an act of mercy. Now, when it comes to God, to say that it's, it's unfair that God only chooses some, that's like saying that God owes salvation to everyone. Did you hear that? It's like, it's like saying God owes salvation to everyone. But does God owe salvation? Does he owe it to anyone? Of course not. No, the only way salvation can come to us is out of God's 
mercy. And so if God owes salvation to no one, he is free to give it to whomever and however many he likes. And so that means even if God, you know, let's, let's just imagine that God elected no one, he's actually free to do that. Uh, he's under no obligation to save anyone. In fact, if you look at this statement in verse 15, this quote from um, Exodus uh, that we read earlier, it says, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So notice the implied freedom in that. See how it's, it's implied. God is free to give his mercy whom he chooses. He's under no obligation. In fact, it's even stronger than that because not only is God under no obligation uh, to elect anyone, but he's, he's actually under obligation to give us what we do deserve. And what is it that we deserve for our sin? We deserve judgment. In fact, this statement in, in uh, verse 15, it comes from Exodus 33, verse 19, and that's the chapter that, that comes straight after the golden calf episode. Do you remember the golden calf episode? Uh, that's that time when the Israelites, they had just entered into a covenant relationship with God and while Moses was literally on Mount Sinai getting the, the covenant document, those two stone tablets, even while he was up there, what were, they, what were the Israelites doing? They were breaking the covenant. Okay? They, they had turned away from the Lord. They would set up this golden calf in place of God. And so when Moses came down from the mountain and saw this, what did he do? He took that covenant document and he smashed it. Why? Because it looked like the covenant was broken. It's all over. At that point, it looked like it was all over between God and the people. And uh, what happened? Well, to cut a long story short, they, they deserved judgment and to be cut off. And yet, amazingly, God decided to forgive them. He decided to renew his covenant with them, to continue with them, and when Moses asked God for, for assurance, how do I know that you're going to keep, that you're going to persist with us? And God said, I'll put you in a rock and I'll reveal to you what I'm like. And that's when he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I'll have compassion on whom I'll have compassion. See, that's why God stuck with them. And so the amazing thing about God's mercy not only is he not under any obligation to give it to anyone, but whenever he does give it to someone, it's to those who actually deserve the very opposite. The only thing God owes people who rebel against him and who break his law, whose hearts are wicked, the only thing he owes them is judgment. And so it's actually scary that uh, verse 14, you know, this, um, this, this critique, there's injustice in God, now, what if God goes, okay then, I'll just give you justice. I'll just give you fairness. What would everyone get? We would all get eternal judgment because that's what we deserve. In fact, without the cross of Christ, that's all that would be available. It's only because of the cross of Christ that there can be mercy for us. And so the thing that should surprise us about God's election is not that he doesn't elect everyone, the thing that should absolutely astound us is the fact that he elects any at all. It should just shock us that he has mercy. 
In fact, it should really humble us deeply because verse 16 does round this off by saying, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And so Paul, again, he's showing us that if we're saved, if we are saved, the ultimate cause of that salvation is not found in us. Okay, it's not our will, which means our desires or our decision. It's not on our exertion, which means anything we do. But where does it come from? It comes from God, his mercy, on God who has mercy. Now, just in terms of uh, implications, sometimes people can say, look, if you believe you're one of God's elect, that will actually make you arrogant because you'll think you're better than others. But if we've understood God's election correctly, we should see that election has the very opposite effect because we realise that God chooses us not based on some merit in us. And so rather than making us think, you know, we're something great because, you know, look at me, no, no, it completely humbles us. We realise, you know, if not for God, there'd be no hope. And so that's the first thing. God's election, it's all about his mercy. Now, second, though, uh, God's election, it's also all about his um, sovereignty. And that's in verses 17 to um, 24. And this is where Paul talks about the other side of election. You know, I guess this side, it's a bit more uncomfortable. But, but Paul, he gives an example of someone who God doesn't show mercy to. And in this case, it's Pharaoh. So look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Uh, verse 18, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So Pharaoh, he's an example of someone who doesn't receive mercy, but that doesn't mean God had no purpose for Pharaoh. Uh, God always has a purpose. He has a purpose in everything, even in those who are not elect. Uh, even in someone who, who was violently opposed to God and his people, God still has a purpose and he brings about that purpose. And in this case, we, we learn that it was, you know, so God might magnify his power so that his, his full glory would be on display. And you see that when you read the account of Pharaoh. You know, it's in Exodus 5 to um, 15 where, uh, you know, God sends Moses and says, let my people go. Now, if Pharaoh said, oh, okay, off you go, you know, that'd be it. <laughs> but the, the fact is, Pharaoh puts up a fight. He resists and resists and resists and resists. And in doing so, what happens? We will see God's power on display in all of those plagues. You know, God triumphs over the Egyptian army. Okay, God's power is, is put on display and God ensured that happened by hardening Pharaoh's heart. Okay, because it says there, he hardens whomever he wills. Now, what does it mean that God hardens people? Does that mean God makes people evil? Is that what it's saying? Is this saying that God is the one who's responsible for making someone evil? No, that's not what it's saying. Because if God's going to harden someone, he doesn't have to work rebellion into them 
that rebellion's already there by nature. Uh, all that God has to do to harden someone is simply remove the restraints. Let them be all that they want to be. And uh, that's something that we've already learned in Romans chapter 1, where God talks about uh, humanity uh, in, you know, in idolatry, and God gives them up to their own sinful desires. Okay? He removes the restraints, lets people become more sinful as they want to uh, do that. And so in some ways we can say that uh, God, to harden someone, he doesn't have to put evil in there, he just has to remove the restraints, which is almost like saying that, uh, that God hardens those who are more than happy to be hardened. And so you see that in Exodus when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, it says that six times in Exodus, it also says three times that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so they, they kind of work together. Um, but God is the one who hardens whomever he wills. Uh, that just means God res- removes the restraints, lets people do the sin that they actually want to do. But here's the thing. Even with that understanding of hardening, we're still confronted with the absolute sovereignty of God. Because verse... Uh, which one is it? This verse says, verse 18, so he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. See, the absolute sovereignty of God. God's sovereignty means that he has the right to do whatever he wants with whomever he wants. And nowhere is that more clearly revealed than in God's election. Now, that, of course, raises an objection. If that's the case, <clears throat> how can God blame anyone for anything? Okay, if God has mercy on whomever he wills and hardens whomever he wills, then how can any of us be held guilty for our actions and our choices? <clears throat> I mean, couldn't someone who rejects God turn around and say to God, you know, it's not my fault I'm rejecting you because you haven't chosen me? That's exactly the objection Paul deals with uh, in verse 19. So have a look at verse 19. He says, You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Okay, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? In other words, how can God hold us responsible for our choices if our choices are the outworking of his choice? Now, how would you answer that question? How how would you go about answering, you know, how can God hold us responsible for our choices if they're the outworking of his choices? How do you answer that? The question is, how does Paul answer that? And it's in a way we probably wouldn't expect. But something that's very important, he says in verse 20, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Now that sounds uncomfortable because it sounds like the objector has just been shut down. You know, no questions are allowed in this courtroom. But Paul's not shutting them down. He's actually helping the objector to see that the objector has clearly forgotten their place before God. Because how can a mere creature assume the position of the judge over the creator? That's the issue here. To help you think about this, imagine a, um, a massive multinational company 
that employs thousands of workers all across the globe, all run by uh, a, a very intelligent CEO who's built the company from scratch. And think about all of <clears throat> the levels of management in a company like that. And then imagine that uh, on a particular week, a brand new employee starts at the very lowest level in the company. And after a week of working, he looks around and he says, do you know what, this company isn't run properly. This isn't how we should be doing things. And he starts criticizing the way things are done. He starts criticizing mainly the CEO, saying this CEO has no idea what he's doing. He's doing it all wrong. Now, what's his low-level manager going to say to him? He's going to say, you actually have no idea what you're talking about. Right? Now, how much more is it the case when someone wants to tell God, the God of the universe, that he's not doing things how he should be doing things? Right? The, the, the distance between us and God is so much bigger than a, you know, a low-level employee and a CEO. But guess what? That's not the illustration Paul uses. <laughs> he uses a, a far... He makes a way bigger comparison. Have a look in verse 20. Will what is moulded say to its moulder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay? See, this isn't CEO and low-level employee, this is the potter and the clay. Has not the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honour and another for dishonourable use? <clears throat> See, the thing with employees, employees can complain and they even have rights. Okay, but what about clay? Have you ever seen clay marching down the streets of Melbourne with banners saying, you know, we want fair treatment. How dare our potter make some bits fancy and other stuff just to be going in the bin? You know, you, you don't see that. You don't see any protests, right? Because the potter has absolute right to do whatever he likes with the clay. He doesn't have to ask permission in what he makes. And I know this does not do our egos any good, but this is the thing. This was what it means that God is sovereign. He has the right to decide people's destinies without the need to consult them in the process. That's what it means that he is God and we are not. This is what it means that God is sovereign. So what we're being confronted with here. It's just how big God is. Maybe we've never thought about God in these categories. But this is what it means, that he is God. He's sovereign. And so notice the direction that Paul is pushing us here. Paul is not interested in trying to satisfy our sense of fairness. Right? Because our sense of fairness is not the measure of what God is and isn't allowed to do. Okay, if, if it was, then we would be putting ourselves above God. But when we put ourselves above God like that, what happens? We don't get to know who he is. We don't know him. We've put him in a box. He's little. See, we don't know him. It's only when we realise his sovereignty that we are then able to know what he is really like. And that's what Paul goes on to say in verses 22 to uh, 24. 
that the reason why God does things this way is to reveal what he is like. Okay, verses 22 to 24, they're all about God showing something, you know, making knowing something, making known what he is like. So listen to these words. What if God, desiring to show, see there's that word, show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not, a, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. Now, they, these are very heavy verses, uh, but it's just making a very simple point that the reason why God makes vessels of wrath it's so that those who are his vessels of mercy can see how glorious God is. That's the point it's making. And it's hard for us because we're not used to thinking about God's wrath as being glorious. You know, we, we, we might think that's something that God would prefer to, to you know, keep hidden. Now, it's a little bit embarrassing. But that's because we don't understand wrath. What is wrath? Wrath is the expression of God's holiness. No, his, his hatred of sin and evil. And so there is a sense in which God's wrath is actually glorious. We need to see it. We need to see it to see how holy God is. But the main point Paul is making is that it's only against the backdrop of God's wrath that mercy makes any sense. And I know that's a very sobering thing to say, but without wrath and without vessels of wrath, we would have no understanding of mercy. You know, that's, that's like saying we wouldn't know God as he really is, that he is the merciful God. Uh, and, and, you know, this is what makes the gospel so glorious. This is what makes the cross of Jesus so glorious. What is so amazing about the cross? It's that God's own son became a vessel of wrath in our place. And it's only when we see God's wrath poured out on his son that then we realise how much he has loved us. You know, if, if God was just like, you know, writing a card saying, oh, I love you, you would go, okay, thanks for that, and put the card in the bin. It doesn't mean anything to us. But when we see, no, we deserve to be on that cross. We deserve to have his wrath come down on us for all of eternity. And then we realise that because he spared us and put his own son on there, now we see mercy. Now it's not just a thank you card or a, or a you know, encouragement card. It's everything. You know, it makes us come here week after week. Why? Because we want to sing about the cross because it's about mercy. It's about God not putting his wrath on us. See, only when we understand wrath can we then see the glory of mercy. And that's what... That's why God does it like this. We would not know him as the sovereign God. We would not know him as the merciful God, which is the same as saying we would not know him if not for election. And so getting back to the original um, or the objection here, can God hold everyone responsible for their choices even though those choices are the outworking of his and the answer is yes, because all of our choices are real choices. Uh, there's clearly a mystery here, but it's not a choice of either or. You know, our choices and God's sovereignty, they're not either or, they work together. 
Okay, but I'm talking philosophically, aren't I? What does Paul say? What Paul says is the mystery isn't the issue. The issue is, will we bow before God's sovereignty? That's what this is pressing us to do. Will we let God be God or will we stand over him saying, no God, you must conform to me, to my opinions, my judgment. This is a very confronting passage. But we will not know God as he is. We will not grasp the glory of his mercy unless we see that his mercy is sovereign mercy. That God has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. See, God's election, it's all about his sovereignty. Now, there is a third point, which um, we're going to look at more briefly. uh, And that is God's election has some big surprises. See, Paul finishes this this incredible, uh, very profound uh, section by including four Old Testament quotes, two from Hosea and two from Isaiah. And the first two from Hosea, they're there to encourage us. They encourage us because they tell us that God's election, it's actually far wider than we could have ever expected. So you notice in Hosea, well, the verses from Hosea, uh, when they were written, there's no way the Israelites could have ever imagined that one day Gentiles would be part of God's elect. Right? That, that, That seemed unbelievable. And yet that's what it says, see, in in verse 25. Those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call my beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. So it's just stating that principle that God has his people where you would not expect to find God's people. And the reason is, is because it's by mercy. And if it's by mercy, that means the worst of sinners can be one of God's own. And I raised this last week, but you know, the reason why we take the gospel to everyone, the reason why we don't write someone off and say, well, there's no way they could be saved, is because it's up to God who he saves, right? We don't know who, who the elect are. It could be someone who we've written off. And that's why we take the gospel to everyone. And that's, what this, this, that's the implication of these verses in Hosea. Okay, God's election, it'll be far wider than we could ever expect because election has some surprises. Uh, and then the last two quotes from Isaiah, uh, that's just stating the principle, well, they're, they're there to warn us that God's election, that yes, it will be far wider than we expect, but it will also be narrower than we might presume. And here, uh, Paul talks about uh, Israel again. He says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So the remnant idea is that the true people of God, God's elect, is always narrower than his outward people. Uh, So that that was the case in the nation of Israel. Not, Not all of the nation of Israel were actually the true Israel, God's elect. But that has implications for the church today as well because it means it's possible to assume that because you belong to the outward people of God, you know, the visible church, it's possible to assume that you are elect when in fact you are not. 
Okay, and that is a very scary thought. So how do you make sure that's not the case with you? Well, I should have included the rest of uh, chapter 9 because Paul goes on to say, this is how you make sure you're one of God's elect. Okay, it's not a crystal ball. You don't need a crystal ball. What you need is to believe the gospel. Okay, the reason why the Israelites, why, why many of them missed out is because they rejected Christ. Okay, they sought after righteousness as if it was by works. And so they thought, we don't need a saviour, we can do it our way. They missed out. So how do you know you're one of God's elect? You embrace the mercy of God that's in Jesus. Okay? God, God doesn't elect anyone outside of Christ. He elects us in Christ. And so if you have Jesus, if you're trusting in Christ, then you can be sure that God has elected you. Okay? His election doesn't depend on us choosing, but he doesn't choose us without faith in Christ. So you can be comforted to know that if you trusting in Jesus, you are one of God's elect. You can be confident of that. And therefore, all of what you've learned in this passage, it's not something to be scared of, it's something to rejoice in. Because it reminds us that God's mercy is sovereign mercy. Okay? The thought that God in eternity can choose you, doesn't that just, doesn't that change your life? chooses out of mercy, but then it's sovereign. That's what's so glorious about uh, the Lord. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so uh, in awe of how big you are. And Lord, we realise that, um, yeah, compared to you, it is like we're just clay. We're just, uh, well, we know we were created out of dust. Uh, We know that we're, we're much more than dust. We're created in your image. Yet nevertheless, the distance between us and you is infinite. And Father, we thank you that even though we deserve to be shut out from your kingdom for all of eternity, we praise you, Lord, that you are the God of mercy. You are the God who chooses to save. And Father, we praise you that in the gospel, that we know that if we have Christ, that if he has gone to that cross in our place and become that vessel of wrath, for us, we can be so confident that we are saved, that you have chosen us before the foundation of the world and therefore you will never let us go, you will never discard us. We thank you for the assurance we have of salvation because salvation is of the Lord. And we praise you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.